0: Hi, I'm Adam from Intercom, and you're listening to Intercom on Product Management. Episode 5, which new features should you actually build? In a previous episode of Intercom on Product Management, we spoke about how product strategy means saying no. But a list of reasons to reject a feature just isn't as immediately useful as a test that any new feature must pass. So what things will you actually add to your product roadmap? Let's walk through the ACID test. A list of yes or no questions that your new feature must score straight yeses on if it's going to get built. Number one, does it fit your vision? What do you believe that no one else does? What do you know about the problem you're solving that no one else does? And how do you believe it should be solved? Anyone can pull the data, run the focus groups, read the Gartner reports, and get out the building. But only you have your vision. Product decisions based on vision alone can seem irrational because they're tough decisions. Most people understand that their bug tracker doesn't also monitor server uptime. That's rarely debated, so it's not a marginal call. But should a project management tool have a reporting feature? That's a lot less clear. The more nuanced decisions are the ones where you'll meet resistance. Colleagues, customers, even other PMs and founders will push back. For example, Apple refused to ship Netbooks at a time when Netbooks were the most popular style of PC. Every analyst demanded them. On a similar note, Basecamp refused to add Gantt charts to their product. And for that, they were labeled as blind ideologists. Worse than being a hard decision, you'll never truly know if you got it right. There is no right and there is no wrong. This is art, not science, and it's just you and your vision. Number two, will it still matter in five years? This is a hard and boring question to ask. It'll make you feel like the curmudgeon of product planning. But that app that was so big in 2016 was gone by 2017. If you're going to spend the best years of your life on a product, avoid the trendy and focus on the meaningful. Number three, will everyone benefit from it? Beware of the recently bias. Most folks never doubt the things they hear frequently or recently should be roadmapped. An inbuilt empathy for customers makes this a natural reaction. It's not nice to tell people no repeatedly and hear the same responses over and over. So when possible, frequently is used as an excuse to reward yourself. Sure, we'll build that. I've heard it twice today already, says the founder with 4,800 daily active users, to the unbridled joy of 0.6% of his customer base. The danger of the frequently bias is that it gives you the illusion of analysis, the sense that you've done your homework and that you've come to a rational conclusion. In reality, you've made a lazy decision to satisfy the whims of a small sample of vocal users without taking a second to investigate how many people really want or need the feature. Number four, will it improve, complement, or innovate on the existing workflow? Adding a whole new workflow to your product should be a rare occurrence. The majority of your time needs to be invested in improving, complementing, or innovating upon existing ones. And for any given project, you should know which of these you're doing. If you're improving the current solution, your metric will be customer satisfaction and or maybe a decrease in tool time or support requests. If you're complementing it, your metric is going to be increased engagement. That's because the workflow now works in more cases or can be used in more circumstances. Innovation is the trickiest. You're shooting for the mythical whole new way, which carries so much risk but offers so much reward. Your measure will probably be new customers acquired, though often they come indirectly as a result of the PR, marketing, or awareness created. Sure, redesigns are fun, but you can spin the wheels on them. A good way to cut through the bullshit is to simply ask, will more people use it? Will people use it more? And if neither, then will it definitely be better for those who do use it? Number five, does it grow the business? This comes down to connecting the dots between the impact this new feature will have and new revenue. For instance, a project management software company might make the case for project templates, with their argument being that templates can be used in more cases, which should increase the number of projects customers have. That in turn increases upgrades and thus revenue. One thing to note here, reducing churn also grows the business. Dollars don't care where they come from. Many times a feature is added to ensure stickiness for customers or to widen the moat around a product. The key point in all these cases is to understand how any work affects growth, because after all, everyone works on growth. Number six, will it generate new meaningful engagement? Most metrics ignore the system and focus on the isolated feature being added. Put a new button in your product and people will click it. Get enough clicks and you can call that an increase in engagement, but that's nonsense. A counter metric is whether people stop doing anything else. So if you add a metric to track one area of your product, you must also analyze the other areas that are likely to be impacted. A real-world metaphor here is the effect of launching Diet Coke with Lime on Diet Coke sales. If you're the PM on Diet Coke with Lime, you see your product's early sales numbers come in, and you could call your launch a success. But if you're the CEO, you'll zoom out and look at sales across the Coke line of products. And what you'll see is that a subset of your classic Diet Coke buyers are now just buying Diet Coke with Lime instead. You've complicated your product line, Bought all these limes, all these juicers, and all that advertising, and have no new revenue to show for it. Not exactly a success. Number seven, if it succeeds, can we support and afford it? One fallacy of quick wins and easy hacks is they usually only consider the effort required before shipping. Let's say someone surprises you with a JavaScript bookmarklet for your app, or an agency produces a Windows phone app in record time and low cost, and because the effort was relatively minimal and the idea makes sense, you ship it. It certainly looks like a success. Then the support requests come in, and it turns out none of your team knows XAML, so you're stuck with a broken build that's live, plus a few hundred customers complaining to support about it. Of course, it's never that obvious. Good engineers rarely say they don't know something. They'll hack at it for a few evenings, display some initial competency, and then estimate how long until they fix the bug. This is all the time that you didn't plan on spending when you shipped this app. That estimate was wrong, and then some. Another area that can bite is offering incentives or initiatives that you can't justify. If you have a CMS product and you offer free homepage designs, you're going to get more signups. It makes sense to do this in the early days when you really need to convince customers to try an as yet unproven product, but it won't work long-term. It goes without saying that doing things that don't scale is a great strategy until you need to scale. Number eight, can we design it so the reward is greater than the effort? As our VP of product, Paul Adams has written, for any feature to be used, the perceived benefit has to be greater than the perceived effort. And users understood the benefit Google Plus could bring. But the overhead of dragging and dropping so many copies of your contacts into various boxes on a regular basis simply wasn't worth it. Check splitting apps habitually fall into this category as well. Splitting a check can be a pain point, but any solution seen thus far still costs too much. And we're not talking about price. We're talking about things like time, overhead, and social capital. Product design is about cost-benefit analysis. How useful is something versus how hard it is to do. To simplify this, imagine four quadrants. The x-axis represents reward, from low on the left to high on the right. Intersecting it is the y-axis, with high effort on top and low effort on the bottom. It's important to know which of the four quadrants you're building in. The upper right is your high effort, high reward projects. This is where your standard workflow should reside. Delightful features like filters in Instagram or stickers in a messaging app sit in the lower right. These are low effort, high reward projects and there may not be many of them. The lower left is reserved for gimmicks and novelty like gamification hacks. They're low effort and low reward. And if you're wise, you'll steer clear of the upper left for all but the most essential of features. This is your high effort, low reward work. Number nine, can you do it well? Every product has its neglected corners. Usually these are places where the PM dabbled for a bit, but conceded defeat. But the thing is conceding defeat rarely results in removing a feature. It usually just means ignoring it, leaving a messy trail and a confused offering. The problem here is when product teams tackle areas they don't fully understand. This happens when a team moves beyond self-design, that is past the point where they are their customer. At this point, their design process breaks and they need a new one. Examples include teams that don't track time, adding a time tracking feature. People who don't manage calendars, designing a calendar management option. And designers who don't close issues, building an issue tracking system. None of those are inherently wrong. What's wrong is the design process. It needs to move beyond works fine for me and into something much more activity focused. To build a feature well, you have to understand the job it does intimately. It's like the old saying, if you can't do it well, it ain't worth doing. Number 10. Can we scope it well? At Intercom, we preach that starting with a cupcake release for a feature is essential. That means building the smallest, holistic version of what this feature could be and then testing it with users. Early usable releases give us the feedback necessary for an idea to flourish. A good sign that a feature isn't well-scoped is when the feedback lacks specifics. Like when you hear someone say, make it work for bigger companies. Or that the feedback is feature-based, like reports, as opposed to a job-based request, like let sales managers see their team performance. It's always easy to agree on truisms in product meetings. Someone says, it should be easier for bigger teams. Everyone nods, and a post-it gets stuck on a whiteboard. It's only in the specifics that you'll understand the scope. It's the difference between hearing, we should let people group their colleagues by department, versus we just need an enterprise mode. Badly scoped features meet no one's requirements, ship late, if at all, and add nothing to the product but confusion. Of course, beyond this 10-question acid test, there are going to be slippery slopes and marginal calls. It's tempting to excuse occasional violations of this list, assuming that as long as it's right, most of the time, it'll be fine. Maybe that's true in theory, but this is software. Reality bats last year. This is why we say that product strategy means saying no. Roadmaps are incredibly hard and require agonizing trade-offs. But regardless, every good PM needs a firm checklist for when to say yes and when to say no. And they don't make exceptions. This has been Intercom on product management.